you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. No shame in using your table of contents if you need it. If you're moving, as you're moving towards the New Testament, people are laughing, I guess it's true. If you're moving, I see everyone thumbing. As you're moving toward the New Testament, you move past the wisdom literature, so Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. You move, move past the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and you move about halfway into the minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. It's called a, a minor prophet. That doesn't mean that it's of minor significance, though I think, sadly, we often treat them as such. They're called the minor prophets because they tend to be, on a whole, smaller books than the major prophets. I trust you guys have made your way to Jonah. Oh, if you don't know the books of the Bible, I would commend to you Shy Lynn's song, The Books of the Bible. It's great. It's a family song, so the kids will love it. I think most of us are familiar with the story of Jonah. It's certainly the most popular of the minor prophets. If you grew up in church, it might conjure up images for you of a feltboard fish. Perhaps it raises questions about how someone could survive in the belly of a whale for three days. And while one scene of the book does take place inside of a fish, the book is not about a whale. It is about God. The book of Jonah paints for us a picture of the sovereign God over all creation and his merciful heart towards sinners like us. The grace of God in the book is intended to confront us in our own self-righteousness as we're prone to think that we deserve God. The book reminds us that we, like the world, need grace and that the world, like us, needs that very grace. The book is intended to open us up to the compassionate heart of God that we might be enthralled by who He is and that we might get on board with His mission to the world. If I had to summarize the book in a phrase, I would say, it's about God's relentless pursuit of rebels. I pray that we'll see that this morning. I want to consider two aspects of the text. They stand in contrast with one another. The first is the folly of Jonah. And the second is the faithfulness of God. We'll see the folly of Jonah as he seeks to flee from God, as he chooses what is futile and fatal even over life with God. And we'll see the faithfulness of God, that he is unwavering in his commitment to his children even as they are rebellious to him. If you will, stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm going to preach through Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee from Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down in to it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind into the sea, and such a great storm that arose that the sea and the ship threatened, such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid and each cried out it was God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for the trouble we're in. So they cast lots and the lots singled out Jonah. 
Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, what have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Amen. You may be seated. First, no, first, we, <laughs> whose kids are that? Oh, dang it, they're my kids. First, we consider the folly of Jonah, the folly of Jonah. Look back at verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, which is to say he's a prophet. This phrase is used well over a hundred times in the Old Testament, and it's the chief defining characteristic of the prophetic office, that God speaks to the prophets of old, and they in turn speak to the people. When you hear prophet, you might be inclined to think about someone who foretells the future. And now most of them did speak about the future. That was not their primary function. You could think of them, a professor of mine called them um, God's covenant enforcers. It wasn't so much that they were talking about something new as much as God through them were calling the people to repentance, to turn back to God from their idolatry and injustice, to return to covenant fidelity with Yahweh. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. What an inexpressibly glorious privilege that he has to be on speaking terms with God, to hear from God directly and to have God's ear, to be on God's mission. Those were the privileges of a select few in Israel's history. Those are the privileges of all of God's people today. The access Jonah had to God pales in comparison with what we have in Christ and by his spirit. We even get a taste of that this morning as we participate in dialogue with God, as he speaks to us through his word, as we respond by listening, singing, praying. Even now, God speaks to us through Jonah. He tells Jonah, verse 2, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Now, this is unique. Most of the prophets, almost without exception, they're sent to the people of God, even when they have messages about the neighboring nations. But Jonah is sent to the nations. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise Jonah or Israel because Israel was meant to be the means by which God brought his blessing to all the families of the earth. They were to be a royal priesthood mediating the presence of God. This is something that Israel had lost sight of, something we tend to lose sight of as well. Verse 3, look at it. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh. Oh, no, no. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. It's a bit of a plot twist. It's unexpected from a prophet. When you think of a prophetic call, you probably recall something like Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah, standing before the presence of God, is undone because of his sins and the sins of the people. 
All he can do is hope for divine mercy in action. That's precisely what he gets as God atones for his sins. God's grace moves Isaiah to gratitude as he cries out, send me, I'll go. Not Jonah, send me, I'll run. There's nothing complicated about what God asks or requires Jonah to do. Jonah didn't need to consort with any commentaries in Tarshish. He doesn't need to fast and pray for understanding. He doesn't need to seek out counsel. God's message to him is crystal clear. He just doesn't like it. What God wills and what Jonah wants are different. And it's going to put the two of them on a collision course. Spoiler alert, God is going to win. Friends, I wonder if any of us are running from the Lord right now. The Lord has spoken to us with clarity about a number of things in His Word. I wonder if there are some things that we are avoiding that God is calling us to, or we're doing that God has called us not to do. How do you think that is going to end up? I pray this book is instructive for you this morning in particular. It goes on, speaking of Jonah, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. So not only does Jonah not intend to go to Nineveh, he's trying to get as far away as he possibly can. They are on complete opposite sides of Jonah's known world. Nineveh is, would be in modern-day Iraq. Tarshish would be modern-day southern Spain. It's seriously as far as he can conceive. It would be like going to Alaska if God called you to the Arabian Peninsula. He probably pays all of his money, not for a weekend trip, probably for what would have been a one-year voyage to get as far away from Nineveh as he can. So why is Jonah wanting to flee so badly? Maybe he, has, he had a bad breakup in Nineveh. Maybe he's afraid of what will happen to him as he preaches against the evil in the city. Israel was situated in a precarious spot in the ancient Near East. At any given time, Israel was surrounded by enemies. And most of the time, it was surrounded by competing superpowers. Egypt, the Syrians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes. Rather than trusting God as their king, Israel would often turn to these neighboring um, nations, their enemies even, for protection, which would lead to further cycles of idolatry and justice and distrust. And God, in his mercy, would often hand Israel over to their enemies as a means of disciplining them. Well, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, one of Israel's enemies. They've already, not too long ago, exacted tribute from Israel, but what's to come for them is worse. Most likely by this point, God has already prophesied through Amos and Hosea, saying that Israel would be completely and utterly destroyed through Assyria. So the Assyrians are Israel's enemies. Their evil is so great. They were known to be so brutal. You might, if you're trying to envision it, you might think of Um, something like uh, ISIS-controlled territory. In Jonah's mind, the Assyrians are not men. They're more like monsters, like uh, Death Eaters or the Orcs in Lord of the Rings. And he knows that one day they they will lay utter waste to Israel. The covenant people of God will be destroyed by a pagan country. And though Jonah's message is one of judgment, verse two, preach against it because their evil has come before me, Jonah has a hunch that God will not treat them as they deserve. They won't get wrath. They'll get mercy. Jonah tells us this in chapter 4, verse 2. I'd encourage you to turn there to look at it. 
Jonas, speaking to God, says, that's why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and the one who relents from sending disaster. Jonah doesn't flee because he's afraid of what might happen to him. He's afraid of what might happen to Nineveh, that they'll get grace, and that's just not fair. That if they survive, it will mean the destruction of Israel. Somewhere along the way, Jonah has fooled himself into thinking he deserves God. What this book puts on full blast for Israel and for us to hear is that whether you are a Hebrew or a heathen, you need grace. We cannot hear that enough that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We add nothing but our sin and our need, our needing to be saved. We'll revisit this when we get to chapter 4, but... I wonder if there's anyone or any group of people that if God saved them, it would actually make you angry. Is there someone you so despise that you refuse sharing the gospel with them in fear that God might actually be kind to them? Perhaps you think there's someone just beyond God saving because they're not, because they're not as good as you are. Behind all of this is a misunderstanding, both of grace and of God. Jonah flees. If God is going to save Nineveh, it's not going to be through him. So he thinks. But what's worse is what's going on in Jonah's heart. Look back at verse 3. Jonah isn't just fleeing from Nineveh. Twice it says that he's trying to flee from the presence of God. It's not just that Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to be saved. He doesn't want anything to do with the God who would save his enemies. So he flees more literally from the face of God. But surely he was aware of Psalm 139 as a prophet. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Trying to escape from the presence of God is a bit like trying to get away from water in the ocean by swimming down. (laughs) It's foolish. Jonah knows this. He knows he can't get away from the omnipresence of God. He's trying to run away from his rule, from his Will. He's trying to evade what we might call the manifest presence of God. Those places where God's presence, His rule, are most um, uniquely experienced and displayed. You might think of it a bit like a hot spot of God's presence. The temple, where God spoke to Jonah. Even Nineveh, where either judgment or mercy will rain down. Jonah is intent on getting as far away as he can from where he thinks God is active. We might be quick to think that he's a real dum-dum. And yet, we skip church when we're steeped in sin. We avoid God's word when we're wandering. We neglect prayer when we're feeling guilty. We evade those church members whom we know will ask us how we're doing. Friends, if you're fleeing from God and sin, I would encourage you to turn around and run to Jesus you'll find him ready to embrace you. Jonah gives a deaf ear to God's word. He's not going to be able to ignore what happens next. Verse 4, But the Lord threw a great wind into the sea, and such a great storm arose at the, on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. Jonah flees, but the Lord pursues, and he does so by way of a storm. Notice the sheer power of God that he throws a great wind into the sea, The way you might toss a ball in your yard, he does so with ease. 
I want to say two things here. One about the providence of God. God's providence is not general. By that, I mean God doesn't have goals in mind that he's either hoping history moves towards. He doesn't even have goals in mind that he knows will be accomplished, but he's not sure how it's going to get there. God's sovereignty is what we would call specific over everything that happens. He ordains the ends and the means. What that means here is God doesn't bring about the storm the way you might shake a snow globe. Like, I know I'm making a storm. I hope it's not too much. I hope I don't accidentally throw one of the sailors over. I only have so many whales nearby. God's providence is specific. It's no accident that Jonah finds a ship in Joppa that just happens to be going to Tarshish, that just happens to have room, that happens to be leaving today. God is not playing catch up with Jonah. History is unfolding as God ordained that he might break down the stubborn, bitter, self-righteous heart of his prophet. The wind is blowing as God has ordained. The waves are hitting the ship exactly as he has purposed. The ship is threatening to break no more, no less, and Jonah is not one drop wetter than God has ordained. God sends precisely what we need, no more, no less. As Jesus would tell the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs on your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God is in control of what seems chaotic. And second, you might be tempted to think that God's pursuit of Jonah is just a bit much. Like, could he not have just found another prophet and talked to Jonah when he got to Tarshish? That would be to misunderstand the nature of sin. It would be to misunderstand what God is up to. He's not trying to punish Jonah. He's trying to call him home. Maybe you notice this as you read the text this week. The author is showing us that the flight from God is actually the flight from life to death. Fleeing from God is not just foolish. It's not just futile. It's fatal. Jonah's flight or his fleeing, it's pictured as a descent. Verse 3, he went down to Joppa. He went down into the boat. Verse 5, during the storm, he went down into the lowest part of the ship. And of course, Jonah will be thrown into the depths of the sea. Jonah is fleeing from the presence of God to the pit. Friends, if we got what we wanted when we fled from God, it would mean death. Choosing sin is like choosing suicide. And God, in his mercy, will not leave us to ourselves. In his providence and his kindness, he uses our troubles, our self-inflicted troubles, even to call us home. This brings us to our next point, the faithfulness of God. Where Jonah in folly is fleeing from God and choosing death, God is faithful. He is faithful to his covenant even as we are not. He is faithful to save his people from their sins. He will not let us go. Now, God is not like a deranged spouse from whom we need a restraining order. He is the loving father of prodigal, wayward, reckless children. The father who runs when he sees his kids. Only he's not sitting around waiting. He's using everything at his disposal. All of creation to call us home. The waves are necessary for breaking Jonah's hardness of heart that he might rediscover the tenderness of God's love. So God doesn't just use the storm. It's not just working out for God. In God's faithfulness, he sends it. The storm is both the consequence of Jonah's sin and it is caused by God. 
it is God's instrument of redemption for Jonah, and as we'll see, the sailors. Everything in our life, in a sense, is sent by God. He works all things together for the good of those who love him, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. This doesn't mean that all of our hardship is a consequence of sin, though it sometimes is. Regardless, God is intent on using all of our hardship to strip us of our self-reliance, to remind us of our need, to rid us of our idols, to conform us to Jesus. I would say to you, especially if you're experiencing the consequences of your sin, if your marriage is struggling because of some of your choices, you're failing in school because you were caught cheating, if you're experiencing the consequences of your sin, don't be like Jonah. Don't double down in your rebellion. Would it not have been easier for him if he had obeyed in verse 2? And yet God, the sovereign Lord, sends the storm to save the sun. He does so because he's faithful. Verse 5, the sailors were afraid. This is how you know it's a serious storm. I don't know if any of you are sailors in here, probably not in Memphis. Or if you've ever watched a show like The Deadliest Catch, they don't get scared. They're getting slammed by 30-foot waves, and they are hauling in crab like they're shopping at Kroger. But these men are afraid. They understand something abnormal is happening The verse goes on, and each cried out to his God. I don't know what they were doing 10 minutes ago, but they got religious fast. (laughs) And they're all praying to different gods, right? You pray to Moloch, Baal, Dagon, Ra, anybody. They have a big coexist sticker on the back of their ship. (laughs) But nothing happens. As sincere and desperate as they might be, they're not praying to anyone or anything with the power to save. Plan B, the verse continues, they threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. It's not clear whether Jonah had gone down to sleep before the storm began or if he actually went down after the fact. Regardless, we're supposed to see a contrast between him and the sailors, whereas they are frantic and desperate and praying and trying to stay alive, Jonah is inactive sleeping, doesn't care that his sin has consequences for those around him. The captain finds him in verse 6, what are you doing? Like, how is it possible that you're sleeping? Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Get up. The very words that God spoke to Jonah in verse 2, this should have been for him a wake-up call. Get up and pray. Again, notice the contrast. Even this Gentile captain doesn't presume upon the grace of God. Maybe, maybe he will consider us. Maybe we won't perish. Jonah, get up and pray to your God that he gives us mercy. Jonah doesn't pray. It would mean coming face to face with the God he's running from. It would mean repenting of his sin. It might mean going to Nineveh and risking the salvation of his enemies. Verse 7, come on, the sailors say to each other, let's cast lots. Then we'll know who's to blame for the trouble we're in. So they cast lots and it singled out Jonah. They're basically drawing straws to figure out who it is. It's in accordance with their religious customs and God in his providence uses it. It's not an accident, right? The one who commands the seas commands the sticks. It's clear to everyone, including Jonah. There can be no denying what's happening. They blast him with questions. And here we get his response, his confession in verse 9. I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah's folly is on full display. 
Pagan gods were localized, specialized deities. Okay, so Baal, for example, is the Canaanite god of fertility. He can't help you on the ocean. Now, he can't help you with fertility in Canaan either. But Jonah doesn't think that Yahweh is this localized deity restricted to Israel, stuck in the temple, ruling over one aspect of life like agriculture or war. He confesses that Yahweh is the God of the heavens, which is to say he's enthroned over all creation. He made the sea and the dry lands, which is to say he created all things. He maintains all things. He governs all things. The ship wasn't there by accident. The storm didn't form by accident. The captain didn't find Jonah by accident. The lots didn't fall by accident. Jonah knows this and he confesses that God is sovereign. And yet in his folly, he fled to the seas. Verse 10, the men are understanding this in a way that Jonah is not. They were seized by a great fear and said to him, what have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. Jonah lays down the whole story. I'm a Hebrew in covenant relationship with the covenant Lord of the cosmos, and I'm on the run. And they're struck with fear, like, what in the world are you doing? This is the folly of Jonah, that his conduct is out of step with his confession. The word for worship that he uses here is actually fear. He says, I'm a fearer of Yahweh. And yet Jonah is the one person on the ship not afraid not afraid of the storm, and certainly not afraid of God. It's the pagan sailors who are trembling, and now it's not because of the storm. It's because they know the one who commands the winds and the waves is in hot pursuit of his prophet. And friends, don't think that the sailors are innocent. Of Jonah's sin, yes. Of their own sins, no. They rightly tremble before a holy God. They are getting what Jonah does not, that they need mercy. So they turn to him, verse 11, what should we do to you so that the sea will come down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will come down for you, for I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Jonah understands at this point the storm is caused by God's providence and it's a consequence of his sin and he offers himself up. Throw me over and the sea will come for you. Now, in one sense, it's commendable. There's no need for the sailors to suffer on behalf of Jonah's sin. But in another sense, Jonah is just doubling down in his rebellion. In chapter 4, Jonah tells us plainly that he's so angry at God's grace that he'd rather die. Jonah's heart is so hard, he's so deep in his rebellion, he's so far in his fleeing that he would rather die than come face to face with God right now in prayer. Jonah only need humble his heart and hit his knees, but he would rather be given to the seas. What's so mind-boggling, it's not that Jonah can't stand the fact that God is holy or just or wrathful. All things that are true, all reasons why enlightened modern people hate the God of the Bible, Jonah can't stand the fact that God is gracious and compassionate and merciful toward his enemies. He would rather give up his last breath in the bottom of the ocean than proclaim a warning of judgment against his enemies. Jonah could repent, but he would rather be thrown over to his doom. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. This is how you know they're scared. 
in a storm, you don't take your ship back to dry land. It's far more dangerous. You'll be thrashed. It's sailing 101. They would rather risk dying than remaining on the seas while the sovereign God of the universe is raining down his just mercy upon Jonah. And they don't want to be responsible for Jonah's death. The irony is thick. They would rather risk losing their own lives and throwing Jonah overboard, the man who wants to see his enemies burn. So they row as hard as they can, but they are caught in the riptide of God's providence and there's no escaping. Not with a hundred men, not with a thousand. God is in relentless pursuit of his children. He's faithful, he's sovereign, and he's not going to give up. Verse 14, so they called out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they pick up Jonah and throw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. They reluctantly give Jonah what he wishes and they throw him into the seas. And then they pray. Again, we haven't seen Jonah pray one time up to this point. Only they don't pray to some random deity. They pray to the Lord. They call upon God by his personal covenantal name, Yahweh. They pray to the one who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, the one who relents from sending disaster. They pray that he would be and do just that toward them. God, relent. Don't charge us with innocent blood. You are in the heavens and you are doing as you please. Verse 16, the men were seized by great fear of the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The sea stops, but rather than being relieved, they are seized by fear. It's not just any fear, it's the fear of the Lord. They know that the God of the universe is active among them. That they are less safe before God than they were before the storm. They grasp the good and just and holiness of God. This is much closer to Isaiah's experience than anything we've seen from Jonah. They sacrifice to Yahweh. They make vows to him. We don't know for certain. It seems to me like they've been converted. That they've turned from worshiping worthless idols to serving the true and living God. God is being faithful to bring his blessing to the nations. Friends, notice God's plans won't be thwarted. Jonah can't stop God from being merciful to the Gentiles any more than he can stop God from being merciful to him. The irony here is God used Jonah to save the sailors. In fleeing from the nations, he ends up on a ship with Gentiles, tells them the truth about Yahweh, and they experience the mercy of God. God's plans will not be frustrated. Friends, I wonder if there is a good that God is calling you to that you're avoiding. Perhaps it's caring for some members in the body or sharing the gospel with a coworker. Maybe it's serving a neighbor. You're not any safer hiding in your home than you are on a ship. God's purposes will prevail both for his people and the nations. We've seen the folly of Jonah as he does what is futile, trying to flee God, and as he chooses what is fatal, we've seen the faithfulness of God as he pursues his children, even as they rebel against him. And I want to give us a bonus point. The foreshadowing of Christ. We see a foreshadowing of Christ, which is really a manifestation of the faithfulness of God. 
Jonah chapter 1 shares striking similarities with Mark chapter 4, which Joshua preached on not too long ago. There Jesus is on a ship with his disciples. Many of them were fishermen. A great windstorm arose. The boat is swamped. Jesus is sleeping. The disciples wake him. They don't tell him to pray to some little God. They expect him to do something. And he does. By a word, he stills the storm. And though the sea is calm, they, like the sailors, are terrified. The only thing more terrifying than the thrashing waves is being in the boat with the one who commands them. Jesus, like Jonah, is a Hebrew. Jesus, like Jonah, is from Galilee. Jesus, like Jonah, is a prophet. Jesus, like Jonah, is given a mission. That's about as far as the similarities go. Where Jonah flees, Jesus obeys. Where Jonah was silent, Jesus preaches. Where Jonah runs from Nineveh, Jesus sets his face for Jerusalem. Where Jonah is powerless before the storm, Jesus is God, the Son incarnate. According to his divinity, he is the God of the sea and the dry land. Jonah, in a sense, is offered up by the sailors to God in hopes of appeasing him. And the storm does stop. Jonah, of course, doesn't die and couldn't die for sins, but Jesus did. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus, the faithful prophet, priest, and king, was offered up on our behalf to God, and not to satisfy a storm, but to satisfy his justice, his fear, the fury of his wrath upon rebels. We do not deserve God's grace. It is unmerited, undeserved, and unconditional to us in Jesus. The gospel doesn't mean that there's no judgment, as though God ceases to be just. The gospel means that in Christ we pass through the waters of judgment. That when God looks upon the cross, he sees our sins dealt with once and for all. That he, as he looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. If you're visiting us this morning, you're not a Christian, we would encourage you to reflect upon the grayness of God's grace and love toward the undeserving. Consider his mercy this morning that though our life is one of fleeing from him in rebellion, God would so pursue us that he would become a man to live on our behalf, to die from our sins and to raise from the dead that we might be set free. We would encourage you to turn from your sins to trust in Jesus today. And if you're a Christian, notice God's gracious, merciful heart toward his people. He could have stopped Jonah before he got to Joppa, but he handed Jonah over to himself to experience the consequences of his sins, not to punish him, but to discipline him as a son, to remind him of his need for God's life-saving grace. Jonah is willing to flee from God to the point of death, and God is willing to pursue him further. As hard as he may try to wiggle out of the hands of God, he cannot. Jonah thinks he's found an escape by being thrown overboard, but as we'll see next week, God sends a great fish to swallow him, not as a means of punishment, but of grace, to preserve his ungrateful, undeserving prophet, to give him life when he would choose death. Friends, this is our God. That though we often choose what is folly, what is futile, what is faithful, that God remains faithful to us. He is not content to keep us in our rebellion. He will pursue and pursue until he has all of us and we are content in all of him. This is good news for stubborn, prone to wander people like us.
Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are indeed the God enthroned in the heavens, over the seas and the dry land. We praise you that you are gracious towards sinners like us, that where we deserve judgment and wrath, you supply us with grace and mercy in your Son and by your Spirit. We pray you would soften our hearts to you, that you would soften us to our sin. We pray that you would keep us from being a self-righteous people, from being a haughty people. We pray that we would humble ourselves before the cross, seeing your faithfulness fully displayed there as God the Son would come to live and die and raise from the dead on our behalf. We pray we would be enthralled, not just by your power, but your mercy. We pray we would not withhold that mercy from others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.